Let me start by introducing the series that we are in. We're starting a new series, but it's actually going back to an old series um, that we uh, were partway through last year. So last year we did a series called Kingdom Questions from the Gospel of Mark. And we've been looking at, we were looking at key questions in the gospel um, because questions are very significant. Questions reveal truth. Uh, when someone asks a question and that is answered, there's a revelation of truth there. So we we're looking at times when someone would ask Jesus a question or times when Jesus would ask uh, someone, uh, someone a question and, and seeing, exploring what that meant. And so last year we got through about half of or two-thirds of Mark's gospel and so we thought, let's, uh, let's finish that off, let's not leave it partly completed. But also it's a really great tie-in because we're four weeks from Easter and so the four weeks leading up to Easter and then Easter Sunday are going to be a, a five-week mini-series capturing the end of Mark and all set in the last week of Jesus' life on earth and ministry on earth. Um, and uh, so that's what we're doing. We're, we're going back to that as we prepare for Easter. And I've got to say, I, um, we've just been preaching on a theme, on the theme of renewal for the last month or so. And I, I like preaching on a theme. Uh, but I must say I love preaching on a passage. And when you preach on a theme, you get to grab a theme and you go very wide. But when you grab a passage, you just start with this one small section of God's Word and you actually go really deep. And that's a really cool thing. And so I've loved this week grabbing this passage and going deep with it. And I got a text message from someone in the church uh, this week who said, um, obviously saw what was being preached and said, um, that is, this is my favourite, one of the verses in this passage, my, and the question that I'm focusing on, my favourite verse in all of Scripture. So, uh, actually, they, they haven't turned up today, but um, <laughs> I'm sure they're on the live stream. So, uh, <laughs> so Dan Thomas, if you're listening, this is this sermon's for you. Uh, let me start by uh, reading the scripture, uh, Mark chapter 11, and we'll start at verse uh, 12. Um, just to give you the context, um, the Jesus at the start of chapter 11 uh, enters Jerusalem, uh, coming in in that kind of fairly well-known passage, coming in on a, on a donkey, and he enters Jerusalem as a king, and people are crying out, Hosanna. And at the very after he enters in Mark's gospel, um, it says in uh, verse 11, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve, which to me is one of the great anticlimaxes in all of Scripture, because there's this, there's this kind of like triumphal entry, and he enters as a king, and then he looks around, and it's quite late, so he goes home and goes back out of the city again. <laughs> it's really strange. <laughs> but anyway, um, and it says this in verse 12, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it wasn't the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. 
And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And I'm going to actually leave it there. It goes on to talk about how they see the fig tree the next day on the way home and um, uh, the fig tree uh, has died overnight, uh, which is a symbol of Jesus' judgment of Israel symbolically because they were like the fig tree in that they were, they were green and big and looked, looked healthy, but there was actually no fruit there uh, to be seen. But let me start, you with a, start with a question. How messy is your house? It's a personal question. And, and, and how full of stuff is your house? How full of stuff is your house? You know, there is a spectrum with houses between the ultra-minimalist, and sometimes you see this in like architectural magazine where you'll see this house and it's, it's just got a concrete floor and glass and, and, and it, it's got like one steel chair in it. It's like the height of fashion, you know, ultra-minimalism. It's, it's like a bunker or something like that. And, and at the other end is houses that look like this. And this is, this is the, the house of an actual hoarder and um, our house certainly doesn't quite get to these stages but we got a two-story house and all the kids clothes and toys and all this kind of stuff lives upstairs and we like to keep downstairs really nice and neat and, and I tend towards minimalism rather than than hoarding um, but but what happens with our house is there's this perpetual like motion of gravity bringing all the clothes and toys and stuff downstairs and so constantly we're, and books, books, taking stuff upstairs, but somehow gravity continues to bring it downstairs. Um, I'm not sure how messy your house is. Hoarding is a real problem. Hoarding is actually a, uh, a psychological, psychiatric condition. And I read a story of a hoarder, and, and uh, in preparation for this message, it told the story of a girl whose house became so full of stuff that she kept accumulating stuff that her kitchen became so full that she couldn't go into it. So she bought a mini fridge and a mini cooker and put them in the hallway. And there was only one chair where she could sit in the whole house. And at night, she would take all the stuff from her bed and put it onto the chair so she could get into bed. And then when she got up in the morning, she would put all the stuff from, her, from the chair back on the bed so she could sit down to eat her breakfast. She hadn't invited anyone into her house for 15 years because she was so ashamed of allowing anyone into her house. This passage is about when things have been let into the house that shouldn't have been in the house. And when the space that should have been in God's house for worship and for prayer had been so crowded in with other stuff that Jesus came to clear away what needed to be cleared away. That's, that's the message in a nutshell. But let me do three things. Let me explain the context of this passage. Let me uh, explain the passage itself and then let me talk about how it applies to our life. There's three key contexts for this passage, to understand this passage. In fact, to understand all the uh, passages that we'll preach over the next five weeks, uh, there's three key contexts. 
The first is uh, that this is the Passion Week. This is the last week of Jesus' life. Now, Jesus had 33 years of life and he had three years of public ministry. But the Gospels spend between a third and a half of their entire content just on this one week in Jesus' life. You think about that. 33 years, three years of ministry, yet between a third and a half of the entire content of the Gospels is set within one week. And that is what we call, uh, it's been known as the, the Passion Week, or Jesus' Passion, which sometimes captures just Jesus' death and resurrection, but sometimes captures this one week. And so all of the, it's like in a movie where you kind of, everything intensifies in this week. Everything that happens in this week is of special significance and everything gets ramped up. The second context is uh, the context of Jerusalem and the temple. If you look at uh, a word search of the word Jerusalem in scripture, you'll see that Jerusalem holds this incredible significance for the Jewish people. God led his people out of slavery, through the desert, into the promised land, and the place he led them was to Jerusalem, where the temple was built. And so Jerusalem and temple are of great significance. There was, you know, there are many churches, there are thousands of churches in this world. There are perhaps a few hundred grand cathedrals. But the temple is nothing like, the temple in terms of its significance to Jewish people is nothing like a church or even a great cathedral. There was one temple and that temple was the place where for a Jewish person literally understood that God's presence dwelt in that place. So people would travel from all around Israel, in fact, across the Roman world, they would come as pilgrims in this incredible act of grace that God dwelt with his people and they could actually draw near to God by coming as a pilgrim and entering the temple. And you can only imagine the significance for a Jewish person, travelling maybe days or maybe weeks, to reach this place where they would finally enter the temple courts and they would finally come into the temple and they would finally make a sacrifice to God so that they would be reminded and know that their sins have been cleansed by the blood of the sacrifice. And, um, and for Jewish people, the, the temple is tied to this whole idea of sacrifice, was that when they were in Egypt and in the, the last plague that was given to, to the Egyptians, uh, the Israelites were instructed to uh, take a lamb and sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and paint it across the top of their doorpost. And when the angel of death came with the plague of death of the firstborn, the, the angel of death passed over the houses that were marked with the blood of the lamb. And so then the sacrificial system reflects this and, of course, in communion, in the cross, in Jesus', Jesus death, the Jesus being the sacrificial lamb, the, the richness of that. So that's the third context is the idea of Passover, of pilgrimage, that this sacrifice is what is going on here. And uh, uh, for the Jewish festivals, 
up to three to four hundred thousand people, it is believed, would come into Jerusalem. It would triple or quadruple its population. The city would be filled with pilgrims who were coming in for this incredible moment. And the pilgrims would come over the Mount of Olives. And uh, having had the privilege of going to Jerusalem, when you come over the top of the Mount of Olives and you look down and there's the Kidron Valley and then there is Jerusalem laid out before you and front and centre was the temple, the greatest building that anyone had ever seen. And there it was. Can you imagine how that would have been for a pilgrim? Knowing that for them, the presence of God dwelled in that place. Jerusalem's still a pilgrim city and it is still an incredible place to go. Uh, When you cross uh, the Mount of Olives or when you go to the Western Wall, if we have that picture, and I know, Nathan, I'll put all my slides out of order for you. Um, This is the the Western Wall. The, 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 The temple was set on this Um, top of this mountain that had been leveled out and they'd created these huge retaining walls. So people think this is actually a wall of the temple. It's not. It's a retaining wall that created the temple mount and on top of the temple mount was the temple. And um, it's still the holiest site for Jewish people. And they come and they pray against this wall because it's near where the temple was. There's not even a single stone standing where the temple stood these days. Not one. But they come and they gather and uh, this is the court of the women on the right that's, the, that's the, sorry, the, the part where women can enter on the right and the men on the left. And in the corner is the closest place to where the temple once stood. And so that will be the most crowded place because it's the most sacred place to go and pray. And interestingly, if we show the next photo, on top of where the temple stood is now this building, which is called the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim shrine. And so the Temple Mount is now effectively a, an enormous open-air mosque And it is the second most sacred site for uh, the religion of Islam. And standing where the temple stood and where the sacrifices were made in the holiest of holy places is the second most sacred site for Muslim people, the Dome of the Rock. It's really fascinating. Just below that is the the most sacred site for Jewish people, which is the Western Wall. And uh, and then about 400 metres down the road is the place where Jesus was crucified. So... uh, But uh, if we go back to that picture of the temple, this idea of temple is incredibly important. This is a a model of the temple that's in uh, the Jerusalem Museum. It's a model that's probably about the same size as this building, but it's outdoors. And, um, oops, I just messed that up. And uh, this temple uh, was designed in such a way that the main building there was was the actual inside of the temple. And there's a series of levels of courts. The outer court was the court of the Gentiles. And then you would enter through those doors into a second court. Only Israelites could enter into there. And then through the third doors, uh, only Israelite males could enter there. And in the third, through the third door there, just in front of the main doors to the actual building, was the altar where there would be a constant fire burning day and night where the sacrifices were made. And then you could go, only the priest could go into the temple. And then inside the temple, behind a curtain, was the holiest of holy places where the presence of God dwelt where once a year, one person, the high priest, could enter behind the curtain to make the uh, sacrifice of atonement. And uh, that's the map there. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, had made a place for the Gentiles to come, for the nations to come. This was the temple of, of, of God, but for the Israelite people, but God, in his grace, had made a space for the Gentiles. 
that they might be welcomed in, that there was a place for them. And it was this place where the, the buying and selling was happening and where the market had, had become inside the temple courts. Jesus went in the night before and he looked around and it seemed like an anticlimax, but actually Jesus was looking very closely. And Jesus was incensed by what he saw. He was heartbroken by what he saw. He was angered by what he saw. I don't know what makes you angry. What makes you angry? The thing that makes you angry probably reveals something about you. Because we don't get angry about things that don't matter or don't, don't matter to us. But when we get angry about something, it reveals that it's important to us. I asked my kids um, uh, just uh, last night or yesterday, I said, what makes you angry? Because I thought it would be good sermon fodder. I'll just uh, harvest my kids for sermon material. And my, my middle son said to me, he said, what makes me angry is when people apologize for doing something but then justify why they did it and actually blame you for it. And then I spoke to my uh, eldest son and he said, uh, what makes me angry, Dad, is when you complete, complain all the time about it being cold in the Adelaide Hills. <laughs> You've got this saying you say all the time, oh, it's winter goes for nine months of the year in the Adelaide Hills because I feel the cold. It's my cross to bear living in the Adelaide Hills. But what makes... Jesus angry, what makes Jesus angry here reveals something about Jesus. And it's very important to notice he has got this incredible righteous anger. And I don't know if you hear that and you go, well, Jesus angry, that, that's, surely he wasn't angry. But let me tell you, the Jesus in the Bible is very different from the Jesus I was taught in Sunday school. And he's very different from the Jesus that is presented most of the time in our church. We love to talk about the love of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus, which is absolutely true, unconditional love and compassion and mercy. But Jesus is also someone who is uh, a man of justice and a man of conviction and a man of deep passion. And he has a righteous anger when he sees sin and when he sees hypocrisy. And if you see in Jesus, Jesus is a man who doesn't mind picking a fight if it's a fight against people like the Pharisees. And he doesn't mind taking a stand and doing something about it, even if it means risking his own life. And we don't see that Jesus very often. And I think sometimes blokes in church kind of are not excited to be in church because actually they don't realise how much of a warrior, how much of a hero Jesus is. That actually they love to watch these movies that portray heroes and we kind of love these kind of movies of this macho bloke who's a hero and we kind of, kind of look up to some people or a sporting hero we look up to. But actually, we don't look up to Jesus in the same way. That's because we got the wrong view of Jesus. Jesus is more courageous and more passionate and got greater sense of conviction and does more about who he is and what he believes than any person who ever lived. And when Jesus walks into that temple, he's not ang he is angry. And he doesn't go up to the moneylender and he says, Excuse me, moneylender, I want you to know I love you unconditionally. In fact, before I turn over your table, just let me give you a hug. And now I'm sorry I've got to do this. Jesus is going bang. And he is going bang. And he is, he is scattering stuff. And he is tipping over the tables. And can you picture the scene of what happens when he does this? I mean, what do the moneylenders do? Oh, please don't do that. No. What would have they done? 
They would have been angry back. They would have been trying to grab him. You've got the disciples in there. You've got Jesus' followers. You've got a riot scene created here by Jesus. And Jesus probably wasn't politely speaking with a soft voice. He's probably yelling out, my house will be a house of prayer. But then somehow in this scene, it seems that Jesus, actually the crowd is quietened as Jesus begins to teach them. And then they're amazed at his teaching. And he begins to explain what he's done. And that causes the chief priests and the teachers of the law to get pretty worried. And that's when they particularly, they plotted to kill him for a while, but now they say, Jesus has really got to go. Now, why is he so angry? Why is Jesus angered? Well, let's look at Isaiah 56, 3 to 7, because that's the passage that he quotes. He says this, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what, I ple- what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to, to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring into my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. They They will burn offerings. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. You see, the Israelites, they could come into the temple courts and into that, that main court. If we can bring up that picture again of the, of the temple, thanks, Nath. They could come into that temple and, and the courts were filled with, with money lenders and, and, uh, and people selling animals for the sacrifice. See, what happened is um, when you went into the temple, into that, that central part, you had to pay a temple tax. But in the temple, you couldn't take a coin with the face of a person. Because there's a, a law that said in the temple there couldn't be a representation of a person in that's part of God's law. Okay, there couldn't be statues or there couldn't be like a stained glass window with a picture of a person. And so what they would do is they'd come in and they'd mostly have Roman coins which had the image of Caesar on them. So they'd need to exchange them for another currency. And so that exchanging of money was it was actually okay that they needed to do that. The problem was in the temple courts that was meant to be a place of worship. That was meant to be a place of prayer. And the, the uh, purchase of an animal for a sacrifice, that was actually okay because a lot of them had come from a long way away and it was a long way to walk your sheep all the way to the temple to, to sacrifice it or to walk your, um, your dove uh, all the way. That would be pretty tricky. Dove would get pretty tired out. So they would come and they would buy their dove or they would buy their, their lamb. It's okay that they did that. Problem is... That is the one place you should not be doing that. When you came into those courts, that should be a scene of worship. Hundreds of thousands of people, there should be tens of thousands of people and you should enter into that. If you see there's a couple of the entrances, the one here, this is looking from the Mount of Olives, is a gate that walked in, but the other entrance is you came from underneath and you could just imagine what it would be like for a pilgrim for the first time 
entering into, I mean, I'll, I'll probably, this is probably sacrilegious to say this, but I'm a great footy fan, and when you actually enter into the MCG on grand final day, uh, and you actually walk in, and you, you get through the door, and you realise, I'm here on grand final day, and you come up through the, the walkway, and you open up into this vast arena, it is like, wow, I'm here, this is amazing. But that's nothing compared to a, a pilgrim who is making pilgrimage to come into the presence of God and they open up onto this court and they should walk into this scene of worship and prayer that just blows them away as God's people are just worshipping and the, the temple musicians are blowing the trumpets and leading them in worship and people are on their knees and people are coming close to God and it should just be the most incredible scene. But when they came up into that place, there's all these people lined up selling goods, selling the exchanging money and selling the animals inside the temple courts. Secondly, the people were largely corrupt and were up putting the prices up and uh, making money. So the temple courts, there's a whole lot of people making money out of it. In fact, to say how bad it had become, Jesus stops people from, uh, from entering and that's because they were, it says they were carrying merchandise. It's kind of like, you know, I came to Jerusalem or my parents came to Jerusalem and, and uh, all they got for me was this stupid t-shirt. Um, they, they were just using it as a shortcut because to go around the temple was, was a bit of a hassle. So people are just using it as a thoroughfare. So Jesus drives them out, upturns the tables and he says, you may not come in here. This is not going to be a thoroughfare. This is meant to be a house of prayer. What does this mean for us? People who don't have a temple. Uh, well, we actually do have a temple. In Corinthians, it says that our body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. So if we understand this, we can apply this to the church and how the church should be, but actually it's better understood as applying to our own lives and our own hearts. Any application, the closest, best application is not going to be how we behave in church, it's going to be how we actually, what we allow space for and what we value and prioritise in our hearts. So here's the first thing. In our hearts, in our lives, the first thing is actually about creating space. Because the Israelites were going in and they were doing their, their sacrifices and they could go into the space where it was holy in that, in that picture. But they had crowded out the space for the Gentiles. They had crowded out the room for those who actually God says, I value and I've got a place for. Jesus, God had made a place for the Gentiles, but they had crowded it out. And the question's got to be asked, are we making room in our lives for those who are maybe on the outside of God at this stage? Are we making room in our lives for the Gentiles? Are we making room in our lives for those who are far from God? Are we making room in our lives for those who are broken and hurting? Uh, just this week I heard this uh, funny story about uh, someone in our church who started coming to our church probably about a year or so ago and has made an amazing um, conversion to, to faith and come to know Jesus and it's been wonderful. And she was talking about how she's started going to church regularly um, to, to a couple of people and they started saying to her, Oh, you know, you, you know, better be careful going to church. Maybe you shouldn't go. They'll, they'll try and brainwash you. And, you, you know, they're sort of warning her against going to church. And it turns out these are people that we've got to know and who know us. And eventually it came out that they, 
They said, so what church do you go to? And she said, oh, I go to Hills Baptist. They're like, oh, Hills Baptist, like, is that where Mark's the pastor? And, and Mark and Mel, oh, oh, that's fine then, no problems. So it's only, it's only other churches that brainwash people. Um, and uh, but the whole thing is the reason that they felt they could trust her to come to this church, and they're a long way from God, and, and obviously they are not people of faith. But the reason they had trust is because we have made time for them. We've made time to be Christians in their presence. We've made time to value them. There's so many Christians fill their lives so much with so many things that they just don't have time for people. We can be busy doing so much stuff. Do you have time for people? Do you have time for people who don't yet know Jesus? You know, Jesus tells that, that story about the Good Samaritan and, and there's the, the man who gets beaten up and left by the side of the road. And the first guy that comes along is a, a priest. He's on his way to the temple. He's busy. He doesn't have time to stop, so he keeps going. The second man is a Levite. He's also on his way to the temple. See, that story is about the temple as well. And so the Levite, he's a man who, who, who's got a very important role to play in the temple. He doesn't have time to stop and help out this man. He keeps going. But then the Samaritan comes along, a man whose theology is all wrong. He's meant to be the guy with a the bad theology, you know, far from God, not a godly person at all. But he makes time for this man. And he makes time to care for him and he gives of his finances to support this man and he gives of his care to care for this man and see God puts all these people in front of us and just after the service I was talking about someone who said you know when I used to go to the night service many many years ago she said I used to be someone who always looked out for the person who was new or the person who was on their own who didn't have someone to talk to them and just were just sort of like a bit isolated she said I always look out for them she said, it was a great reminder for, that I need to keep doing that. So you've got to make time for people. You've got to make space for people. Jesus is saying, do not fill this, this space with, with shops and with, with stalls and with tables. Clear it out. This is meant to be space for the Gentiles. I made room for them and you're not giving them room. Our church needs to give room for such people. That's why last week we had a, a week where we did Alpha, a taste of Alpha in this in, this, uh, in our main service because they're saying this is a priority for us that we would make space for people who do not yet know Jesus. How many churches fill their programs with so many things that constantly uh, fill the lives of Christians with stuff that's just about discipleship and almost so much that they don't feel like they have time to be on mission. We've got to make space. Secondly, we need our church to be a house of prayer. A house of prayer. I, I wonder if I asked you uh, before this sermon, what's the most important part of a church service? Well, you might well say it's the preaching of the message. The preaching of the message is pretty important. But Jesus did not say, my house will be a house of preaching. He said, my house will be a house of prayer. What about uh, 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 praise or, or worship? Worship's a pretty important part. We, we have a band every week. We prioritise that. They get here early. They practise. People love it when we raise our voices and when the music's good and there's a sense of we're just singing in one voice. Praise is pretty important. But Jesus didn't say my house will be a house of praise. He said it would be a house of prayer. And as a church... As, a, as leadership, we run a whole lot of programs, life groups. We ran growth track. We're running a men's event, a women's event. We've got a lot of stuff that fills our notices. But Jesus did not say, my house 
will be a house of programs. He said it will be a house of prayer. And so what place does prayer have in our community? Last week we had, or two weeks ago, we had a week of prayer. And uh, I put out the challenge for everyone to come for one night to pray for an hour and a half. And we had about 10% of our church adults come and be part of that, which is interesting, isn't it? I don't think prayer is a great seller. It's not a great draw card. Come and pray. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Our church should be a house of prayer for all nations. But not only that, our lives should be a place of prayer. I love the old Keith Green song, if, you, if you're into 70s um, Christian music, as I am not, but I love Keith Green's music. Make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want me to. No empty words, no white lies, no token prayers, no compromise. Make my life a prayer for you. The Apostle Paul said, pray not daily. He said, pray unceasingly. Pray at all times. Let your life be this kind of a life of prayer. It doesn't mean that you're kind of walking around constantly saying, dear God, dear God, and having to constantly talk to God constantly. But it means that somehow your life becomes so immersed with God's presence that your life becomes a prayer. That as you live out your life, it's, a, it's an act of prayer to live your life. Your faith is so deeply tied because our body is the temple and therefore the presence of God by the Holy Spirit lives in the temple and we need to draw near to God, the Holy Spirit, allow it to fill us and renew us and refresh us. And we need to sort of foster the presence of God that's living within us, just as the presence of God dwelt in that temple. Allow our lives to be a life of prayer, a life of worship. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. They know me. He says, I, uh, my sheep hear my voice. They listen to my voice. They listen for my voice. So how do we do that? Well, if we're going to become a people of prayer, there's probably one key thing that we need to do, and that is actually we need to clear out some rubbish because life gets very full. And life by the nature of it these days is full. It is full of activity. It's full of busyness, but it's also full of noise. It's also full of screens it's just full of stuff it's full of music it's full of talk and there is very little stillness and there's very little silence and there's very little sabbath in our lives and some of you go well how on earth can i create room i've got three kids i've got a full-time job my spouse has got a full-time job we've got kids that do six sports and and everything's busy and our life kind of looks like that too but we can clear some stuff out and we can create some space. And sometimes the stuff we've got to clear out particularly is the stuff that shouldn't be there, the rubbish. You know, Jesus in John chapter 2, it tells us that this wasn't the first time that Jesus cleared out the temple. In fact, he did it right at the start of his ministry. He cleansed the temple in John chapter 2, right at the start of his ministry. And that occasion, just to give you a a sense of how angry Jesus was. Jesus prepared for that time of cleansing the temple by making a leather whip to take in. And Jesus cleansed the temple, but when he comes back again, the temple needs cleansing again. 
And it's a bit of a reminder for us, a bit like the house that slowly acquires stuff. You don't just, you don't just cleanse and clean out the house once, you've got to be cleaning out regularly. Because there's rubbish that comes into our house and into our hearts and into our life and we've got to clean it out. There's a bit of an interesting one with the Alpha video last, last week. He said something interesting. He said, sometimes addiction, we think about addiction as, you know, addiction to hard drugs or something like that. But we can get addicted to a bad attitude. We can get addicted to a temper. We can get addicted to uh, just something that is just something that shouldn't be part of our lives. And we kind of get, we let it in and we kind of let that junk build up. And so this morning, as we finish our message, I want to encourage you to do a little bit of what Jesus did on that day in the temple when he drove some stuff out. And when he said, I'm not going to anymore let some stuff in. And when he turned up, turned something and, and just said, no, I'm just not having that. And he scattered it. And so I'm going to encourage you to think about what is it in your life this morning that you need to say, no, I'm not letting that in. And I'm going to drive that out and I'm going to turn that over and I'm going to block that from coming in. Because just about all of us, I think, know that there's some stuff that's in our life that's kind of a weak point for us and it's something that we let in. And in its place, may we enter into a much deeper fullness of knowing that God's very presence dwells in us. Our body is a temple And it is a place and we are a people called to prayer. So I invite you this morning to communion. To gather around the table which commemorates the blood of Jesus shed for us. The body of Jesus broken for us on that cross of Calvary just outside the walls of old Jerusalem. And I invite you before you come to take a few minutes to pray. To pray and to be still and to be silent. And to reflect and say, Jesus, what is it that you need to drive out? What is it that by your power and maybe only by your power needs to be driven out of my life? What is it that I've allowed to just fill this space which is actually meant to be a temple? And I pray that you would ask Jesus to remove that and by the power of the Holy Spirit that he would do that, that he would cleanse you. In fact, we know that he has cleansed us of our sin. So now may he cleanse us of our daily lives of the stuff that shouldn't be there and bring in an infilling of his spirit afresh i invite you to take time and when it's right for you to come forward to come and take this take it back to your seat hold on to the cup we'll drink that together but eat the bread and then um, and just enjoy this time you've been listening to a sermon from hills baptist church To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.